All right, let's make sure you're in John chapter 20. Navigate over there on your device or in your paper Bible. That's our text, verses 1 through 18. The topic we're going to find there, John shows us the resurrection of Jesus through the wet eyes of Mary Magdalene. The title of our message, Mary, Mary, quite despairing, where did his body go? (laughs) Father, we love you and thank you for your word. We approach your uh, word with reverence, uh, hopefully openness, Lord, to hear what the Spirit has to say to, to each of us individually and to our church collectively. We thank you for the body of Christ gathered here today. Uh, Lord, uh, may all of us, myself included, be good Bereans and think about the things we're hearing, receiving those that are from you, Lord, and uh, things that are not from you, Lord, that we would set aside. We love your word, we love how it reveals you, and we love how it reveals ourselves in relationship to you. And so do, do many good and wonderful works today, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Jesus Christ, superstar, the last temptation of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the passion of the Christ, perpetuate the belief that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. People are always surprised to learn that nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that she was a prostitute or even immoral. Maybe the chosen gets it right. No, they depleted all their creative license on Mary. Here's the backstory they contrived. Mary lives in the Red Quarter, the worst district in Capernaum. There she was sexually assaulted by a Roman officer. After the encounter, darkness descended on her soul and seven demons possessed her. When the demons controlled her, she would terrorize the neighborhood going by the name Lilith. One day, the Romans were made aware of Lilith's possession and ordered a leader of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, to perform an exorcism to drive the demons out, but he fails witnessing the demons in terror. In Dan Brown's best-selling 2003 fictional book made movie, The Da Vinci Code, Mary was not a prostitute, That was good news, but it's worse, actually. Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married, according to Brown, and had children that uh, the the holy grail of legend is Mary because she's the vessel who carried his children. Remember the miniseries called The Bible? They got Mary right. There's a lot of other things that they deviated on, but they never once hinted that she was immoral. So why do we think of her as a prostitute? One word, Pope Gregory I. That'll never get old. You know, I used to do that, though, before our president did that, so I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I figured he was just joking, right? That's like, well, never mind. I was here somewhere. Okay, so Gregory I. Uh, On September 14, 1591, Gregory gave a homily in Rome pronouncing that Mary Magdalene was the woman in the city who is a sinner in the Gospel of Luke who washed Jesus' feet with ointment and dried it with her hair. And so that caught on, and for centuries after that, Mary Magdalene has been understood to be an immoral woman, a prostitute. Mary is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, and in the majority of them, she is either at the cross or at the tomb. She was a faithful, loyal believer. She was the first person to set eyes upon the resurrected Jesus. And John tells his resurrection story through her experiences with the Lord. 
I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, the power that raised Jesus will accompany your serving. And number two, the power that raised Jesus will anoint your sharing. Let's take a look at our serving in verses 1 through 10. David Wilkerson writes, Often I feel like a drained car battery. If you forget to turn off the lights of your car, all you get the next day is that dreaded noise. I worked on that all night. That's why I don't do impressions. The empty clinking sound of dead machinery. There are passages in the New Testament that indicate a church, and hence the believers in that church, can make the empty clanking noise of dead machinery. The Apostle Paul chided the churches in Galatia. They started the way Christians always do, in the Spirit, uh, by the resurrection of Jesus and His power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they were like a dead battery in that they were trying to live the Christian life in their own power. Uh, And that wasn't working out for them. Uh, Paul said, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And the answer is no. The Lord's beloved church in Ephesus was running like a well-oiled machine, and that was their problem. Jesus let them know they had left their first love, and the result was a mechanical representation of what ought to be a loving relationship. Why think of yourself as a battery at all that runs out when the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you? Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't get hungry or thirsty, uh, you know, spiritually speaking, and, hey, I want to get back into fellowship, or I want to do this or do that. I'm talking about basic every day, every moment of the day things. You have just as much as the Holy Spirit uh, all the time. I mean, he can't be diminished in your life because he is a person. It's not like in The Little Mermaid where the mermen all turned into little wiggly things. You know, remember that? The Little Mermaid. How many of you have seen The Little Mermaid? I know we don't do Disney anymore, right? It's like, what did I do? I stormed out the Sunday he mentioned The Little Mermaid. But uh, anyway, the, the sea witch turns them all into these little withery creatures. And I think somehow that's, that's how, sometimes I think that's how we think of ourselves as Christians. If I don't get here, if I don't do that, if I don't do this, I'm going to wither. I understand that part of it, but, but as far as the Holy Spirit in your life, he's either in your life or he's not. And if you're a Christian, he is, and he can't go anywhere. Uh, and so you are always able to respond spiritually by yielding to the Spirit. You're never a dead battery because the Spirit is an inexhaustible resource uh, from the Lord. Uh, Romans 8.11 is going to summarize everything I'm going to say today. That verse reads like this. It says, God raised Jesus to life. God's spirit now lives in you, and he will raise you to life by his spirit. This is a promise for now as well as eternity. And so let's look at some of the now in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The first day of the week is Sunday, Post-resurrection Jesus, Sunday was an important day for the church. Jesus rose on Sunday. Christians are recorded assembling three times on a Sunday after the resurrection and before the ascension. The church was born on a Sunday. The only day ever mentioned when Christians broke bread was on Sunday. And Christians are commanded every Sunday to give to the church. 
Two things to clarify about Sunday worship. Sunday is not a new Christian Sabbath. It doesn't replace the Jewish Sabbath. We have nothing to do with the Sabbath. We now have a daily Sabbath of Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. Everything that was typified in the Sabbath is fulfilled in him, and so we don't keep a day or any ordinances uh, in that way. Uh, Now, having said that, you can worship any day of the week. Sunday isn't a must. We could worship Monday or Thursday. It doesn't matter, but our society has been built around the idea of uh, holding Sunday to be the day Jesus rose from the dead. And if you're going to take a day off, that might as well be the day. And so we live in the vestiges of all that, uh, where people didn't work on Sunday. Remember that? Do you remember? Who's old enough to remember when no one worked on Sunday? It was crazy. Now, you worked on Saturday. We worked six days a week in the snow both ways, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) No, my dad is, is an immigrant. We did. We worked six days a week then. Uh, you know, five and a half days, and then finally he, you know, closed on Saturday. But everything and everybody was closed on Sunday. It was just the way things were. But again, it's not a Sabbath for Christians. Uh, it, it's just the day that the church seemed to do a lot of stuff in the New Testament, and so we've adopted that. Magdalene is not Mary's last name. It would be better to call her Mary of Magdala. That was a city on the shores of Galilee. Uh, and, and for the remainder of our talk, when I say Mary, I mean this Mary, Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. She came while it was still dark. This is an interesting devotional thought I had because you see that Jesus had come to her when she was still in darkness. Not only the darkness of, of sin like the rest of the people of the world, uh, but in a peculiar special darkness being uh, possessed by seven demons, Uh, and yet the Lord was able to easily set her free by exercising those demons, and she became a servant of his. A quick sidebar, whenever we encounter demons in the Bible lately, we've been suggesting that they are not fallen angels, but they are some type of their own category of supernatural wicked beings. A couple of reasons for that. Number one, the Bible never says that angels or foreign angels uh, possess people or have a desire to possess people. And whenever we see angels, they have pretty glorious bodies and, you know, they're kind of content in that state. Second, uh, demons always are portrayed as lusting after a physical habitation. When Jesus was going to cast out legion, they said, hey, send us to the pigs then. You know, we have to inhabit something because we seem to be disembodied. Uh, And so uh, demons seem to be some type of disembodied creatures that desire to possess individuals. And that really doesn't express what a fallen angel uh, is like in the Bible. So just something to be thinking about uh, and studying on, on your own. Mary went to the tomb, believing that it had been shut and sealed, Therefore, she would have no way of entering it. She, she knew that it had been shut. The Romans put a seal on it. You know, don't pass this, kind of like the tape that they put on a crime scene. And yet she headed out early in the morning to anoint the body of Jesus. It teaches us to take one step at a time in our Christian walk. 
She didn't know, if, if you had come to Mary and said, Mary, what are you doing? It's early in the morning. I'm going to go anoint the body of Jesus. How are you going to get into the tomb? Oh, you're right. I guess I might as well sleep in. No, Mary just said, no, this is what the Lord is leading me to do. This is what I'm going to do. If I can't get into the tomb, I guess I'll just hang out outside the tomb. But she was going. And then, of course, God made a big way for her to see what was in the tomb and later to be the first person to set eyes on Jesus. So just take the first step. We love to plan, don't we? we and we always start with the end. Where are we going to be in, you know, when we're 50 or 60 or what's the goal? When I used to sell title insurance and I'd go to different offices and, and uh, people's little cubicles, a lot of them always had their big goal on, in a picture, One, whether it's a mansion or a yacht or a Lamborghini or a, you know, something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm working towards that. And the Christian life's a lot different. We're just working. We're working for the Lord. And he says, Gene, this is where I want you right now. Lord, where am I going to be in 10 years? What do you care It's not up to you, and what do you care? And if I told you now, you wouldn't believe it anyway. You have no context for understanding it. You won't be the same person 10 years from now, so just do what I'm telling you to do. So uh, take that to heart. The Lord wants you to do something, do it. He will open the doors or open the tombs later on. So she went and saw that there was, uh, the stone was rolled away. She ran in verse 2 and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. We do not know. There were other women with Mary, as few as two or as many as four. It's always hard to harmonize the Gospels. They, they all tell the same story but from different viewpoints. Uh, it's interesting, John likes to concentrate on one person at a time. Woman at the well, uh, you know, man born blind, it's just usually him and this person. Uh, and so it's just a, a unique kind of feature of the Gospel of John. And so this is Jesus and Mary. And uh, Peter, she runs to Peter and John. Now Peter denied the Lord. The last time we saw him, he had denied the Lord. John was with him, and Mary came to both of them. Bishop Ryle writes, The love and tender nature of John's character come out most blessedly in his affection for Peter. Even after his denial of Christ, John clings to him and has him under his own roof. And so that's a really big deal, uh, you know, that John took in Peter. I mean, John could have said, you know, next time he saw Peter, he could have said, hey, where were you? I was at the cross, me, the only one. I didn't see, where were any of you guys, but especially you? After denying the Lord three times, I love the Lord, and you denied him. I don't want to see you anymore. I mean, that's a possibility. People do that all the time in less important relationships. Uh, and yet John uh, ministering to Peter, Mary still recognizing them both as leaders, They were living out what Paul would later advise us. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. How much more can we do this post-resurrection now that we have God living in us? And so let's be those who are gracious to sinners who want to restore sinners, 
not overlooking sin, of course, but uh, erring on the side of grace if we need to, to bring people back into the fold. It's been said many times that the first unbelievers of the resurrection of Jesus were the believers. Mary expected to find Jesus' dead body. She had no hope in his resurrection. We read in other gospels, she brought spices, uh, myrrh and aloe, to anoint his body with. She didn't bring a change of clothes. She didn't think, hey, I I wonder what's going to happen when Jesus rises from the dead if he's going to be naked or have clothing. I better bring him one of his extra tunics just in case. She had no expectation that he would rise from the dead. The action momentarily shifts to Peter and John, beginning in verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. They both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. We often wish that the inspired writers of scripture would give us more detail in certain events, right? You have questions like, what was that really like? Or how many people were there? Or what time of day was it? Or, you know, those kinds of things. There are a lot of unanswered questions. I find it therefore hilarious that John felt it was necessary to point out that he outran Peter. What's that all about? So that for the rest of Christian history, he could be known as John the Flash or, you know, or what? Or that Peter was obese? I don't know what the situation was, but as far as things you might wonder about, I can't imagine reading that text and and say, uh, excuse me, Who got there first? Because that seems critical to me. And and so anyway, it's just weird. Verse 5. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Who knows? Maybe Peter shouted to him, don't go in by yourself. Don't go in alone. Hey, all they had was Mary's testimony that the body was gone. For all they knew, grave robbers could still be in the area. And, you know, anybody's willing to rob a grave, I don't want to meet them in a cemetery, do you? Uh, You know, and so there's just a lot of, whatever was going on, Peter said, hey, wait for me and we'll do this thing together. Verse 7, the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Uh, So it required some uh, manipulation. J.C. Ryle commented, the body was gone from the tomb, the clothes were left behind, and the condition of them indicated that Christ had passed through them without their being unwrapped. If friends had removed the body, would they not have taken the clothes with it? If foes had removed the body, first stripping it, would they not have been so careful to dispose of the clothes and the napkin in an orderly manner in which John now beheld them? Everything pointed to deliberation and design, and the apostle could draw only one conclusion, Christ had risen. Speaking of questions that we wish the Bible would give us the answer to, maybe we get an answer here, it would seem that when we are raptured, we'll go through our clothes, the way Jesus went through his wrappings. And it seems to me that we'll immediately have our white robe, our robe of righteousness uh, as we're taken up to be with the Lord. Next time we see ourselves, we're coming back with the Lord in those white robes of righteousness. And what a boon day that will be for secular thrift stores all over the world. (laughs) 
because all of your clothing will just be left behind in a neat pile, uh, you know, the, maybe they could have opened the Left Behind Clothing Company, as a matter of fact. So, tell your non-believing friends that they, you have a business venture for them. That uh, you know, if hey, you need to get saved before the tribulation. If not, you're going to own the Left Behind Clothing Company, and that's not not going to make it. John 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. He saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. At that moment, he knew that Jesus had been restored to life, but he did not yet fully apprehend that the scriptures predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. They needed the insights Jesus shared with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so even though they'd been with Jesus for three or three and a half years, some say four years, and he had told them many things, it hadn't dawned on them that the scriptures uh, predicted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of their Messiah. Uh, but the Lord was able to open their eyes to that after he was risen. Verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. You'd think an emergency meeting of the 11 would be called. I mean, this is, this is kind of big news, right? The tomb is empty and the, the stone is rolled away. Nobody knows what's going on and they go home. Or that they'd at least want to be together. Compare and contrast this with the day of Pentecost. After 3,000 pilgrims from all over Judea were saved, they refused to leave Jerusalem to go home. They hung around to be taught by the disciples and to share in daily fellowship with one another. They wanted to know everything they could about the Lord and about this thing that had happened to them, this uh, coming of the Holy Spirit, before they went back home to their, uh, from where they had pilgrimed from. There's nothing deficient with our worshiping together once or twice a week, coming to church on Sunday, but you know it's a revival when people won't go home. It's one of the things that happens in revival is that meetings go on for hours and hours and hours, and it seems like a few minutes no one wants to go home because they're worshiping the Lord and hearing about the Lord. Uh, now, you can't make that happen. You know, we're not going to cut one Sunday, I'm not going to say, hey, this is a revival Sunday, and we're all going to be here for 17 hours straight. I don't want to do that, do you? But I've heard testimony, and even within Calvary chapels of times when the, you know, a genuine revival broke out and um, the people were just blessed to, to be together. It was the first day of the week, and Mary came to be with the body of Jesus, bringing fragrances to minister to his body. It is the first day of the week today, and we have come to be with the body of Jesus on earth, the church. We bring gifts to minister to his body. We saw a hint of what ministering to the body looked like in John's treatment of Peter. We could go into a lot of directions here making comparisons, uh, but the idea is that we uh, come together and minister to one another and uh, receive ministry. You know, everybody needs ministry, right? Some people, they come to church hoping somebody will say hello or you know, Lord, let them notice me, let them know that something's going on or whatever it might be. And, and yet, at the same time, not to be mean, but 
the Lord would also say, hey, why don't you minister to somebody? Why, why don't you, you know, you know, if look in the mirror and what do you see? Do you see despair or bitterness or whatever it is? And then pick out somebody that looks like you <laughs> and, and minister to them. I mean, that sounds, you know, a little bit constrained, but you know what I mean. So we come together to minister to one another as the body of Christ, and he is blessed by it. The power that raised Jesus will anoint your sharing, verse 11 through 18. Anoint's one of those vocabulary words we use within the family of believers. We mean by it, I think, to convey the desire that our serving God be in the power of the resurrection by the indwelling Holy Spirit, not of our own strength. And so that we have a presence of God, an empowering of God, uh, not so much noticeable outwardly because we're doing weird things or yelling or shouting, but because inwardly other people are getting ministered to while we do it. Jonathan Edwards, some of you familiar with Jonathan Edwards? He's a, you know the Great Awakening and and all God used him for revival. Uh, I did some studying about him a, a, a while back. He is uh, considered the dullest pastor ever. He just dull, boring. He would he had hours of scripture or of sermon, and he would read it in a monotone so as not to call attention to himself. And so whatever happened through Jonathan Edwards was not because of Jonathan Edwards. You get my drift? You know, I mean, you can whip things up and dance around. Well, you can dance around. I can't. But, uh, you know, I never was good at that. I'm like Elaine Bennis, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's the Lord. And so the anointing is something that's spiritual. It's not something that's physical. It can't be seen. It's experienced. Obi-Wan called Vader more man than machine. A Christian or your church can become more machine than man when it comes to serving the Lord. I don't want to be mechanical, and I know neither do you. I want to be fruitful, and so do you. Having begun in the Spirit, we want to continue in the Spirit. We want this anointing from God. Believe that the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, providing you all sufficiency of grace to work, uh, walk worthy of the Lord. Believe you are anointed. And so verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Now Mary lingered behind and had these extra wonderful uh, experiences. She saw two angels. One sat at one end of this, uh, you know, where Jesus had lain, this stone tablet, and one at the other. Now, what are angels doing sitting down? Uh, do they, are they bored? Uh, you know, are they waiting for something? Well, no, it's a symbolism. It's a beautiful symbolism. They're sitting down at each end, facing away, and if they had wings, their wings would be touching. And if you're familiar at all with the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, the mercy seat that was the lid for the Ark featured two cherubim on each side sitting with their wings touching. And so this is a depiction that the tomb of Jesus Christ was the mercy seat where men met with God. And what an amazing thing for a Jew to see that, that now Jesus is our mercy seat. We go to him for grace and mercy 
with no mediation. We no longer need the temple. We no longer need the priest. In fact, they didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat uh, after the Babylonian invasion. Uh, I was a pretty mature Christian before I realized, I just realized they never had the Ark of the Covenant in Jesus' day. He, and anyway, he is that fulfillment. Uh, and so that's all in Exodus 25, if you want to check that out later. Verse 13, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. We can speculate Mary felt alone, lost, without purpose, confused, directionless. Add your own adjectives from your own times of despair. When you feel that way, quickly remember that Jesus promised to never, ever, not ever leave you or forsake you and say to yourself, why am I weeping? Now, I'm I'm not saying you can't weep or shouldn't weep uh, or that you won't weep or that you're a Christian, you'll tough it out. That's not it at all. Weep to fill up Hoover Dam. I mean, go for it, you know. But you never are sorrowing as someone who has no hope. Jesus Christ is hope. Relationship with him is hope. And not hope that maybe things will turn out, but that they will turn out because of what he's done on the cross and in rising from the dead. You know where Jesus is. You know that he could come for you any moment of any day. You know about the world's future. You should live the way Paul did, saying that uh, for him to die is, uh, to live is gain. No, (laughs) this is always a great one. I'm going to do it without looking at my notes. To live is Christ, but to die is gain, right? That's, That's Paul. Every day he's like, oh, to live is Christ. I'm alive. I'm going to serve the Lord. Uh, What's on today's agenda? Shipwreck, maybe, beating, imprisonment. But, you know, that's to, but, or to die is gain. Maybe today I'll lose my head, you know, in a a more physical way than I sometimes do. And, And so that's the way we live. That's the way we roll, you might say, as Christians. Verse 14. Spontaneous. (laughs) Give me a second. That's the way we roll. Verse 14. (laughs) Now when she had said this, like Isaiah, I'm beside myself. But anyway, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. The last time Mary had seen Jesus, he barely looked human, the Bible says. He'd been beaten, crowned with giant thorns, beat down into his uh, head. He had his beard plucked out. That's ugly and painful. His abused body had been wrapped. Add to that, she had no expectation he was alive, and she was stressing about the location of his body. In addition to all that, she was weeping and had, I'm sure, failing eyesight as there was no lens crafters in the vicinity. You ever think about what life would be like if you didn't have glasses? Wow, I'm sick already just thinking about it. I mean, you know, I couldn't read. I could barely recognize you. And so she's having a hard time. Plus, but on top of all this, I really think Jesus just was holding off, showing her who he was for a very special reason. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, who else would be up that time of day, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. God is romantic in the purest sense of that word. 
While we might studiously study the doctrine of redemption, you know, from the law, the books of the law and things like that, God says, hey, why don't you read the book of Ruth too? Because it's all about redemption, only it's in, depicted as a love affair between Boaz and Ruth. And it reminds us that our redemption is a love affair between our Savior and ourselves. And so God is romantic, and there are many episodes in the Bible that I think can only be understood uh, in this great love of God that he has for us. And so I think Jesus hid his identity on purpose to be romantic. It reminds me of those scenes uh, in the movies or on TV where the wife is talking to her husband on the phone and he's deployed somewhere, but he's really in the next room and she doesn't know it. And then he walks in and she goes, ah, just like that. Always like that. But anyway, you know what I mean. It's, it's, a, it's a fun, romantic way of, of uh, you know, coming to the one that you love. And I think Jesus was doing that. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, teacher or master. Jesus said his sheep would hear his voice and that he calls us by name. And that's a good example of it. Nobody knows you like Jesus. Jesus said, uh, Mary, and she said, teacher, Sorry, Dan Brown, she called Jesus my teacher, not my lover or my husband. How old do you think Mary was? You don't have to shout it out, but I think uh, in terms of her being Jesus' age. Uh, And largely because before I was a Christian, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber had a hit song, uh, I Don't Know How to Love Him, by Mary Magdalene singing to Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar. And you always think, well, yeah, they must have been the same age, could have dated, maybe they got married. You know, as a, before you're a Christian, you're open to anything. Scholars feel, through, I don't know exactly how they arrive at this, but scholars feel she may have been around 59 years old. Uh, okay, now, if you're 59 years old, ma'am, you're not old, but uh, you're 20 years plus older than Jesus was. And though love, you know, conquers all, sometimes people think it's odd when people are decades apart. You know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm happy that's your business. Uh, but, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, this was a, a hot love affair, you know. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, 33 years old, at best she's 59. In their culture, that was a, not a good thing. Uh, and so uh, we just have biases too much. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your Father. Yes, there is a site called Happify.com. And here's what they said about hugging. Hugging can be described as a handshake from the heart. Simple action of embracing creates feel-good energy for both the giver and recipient. Science has been looking into its positive effects. And numerous studies have been reaching the same conclusion. Hugging is a crucial part of human development. However, you huggers, you think you've won. But I've noted, this is also science, you do not hug long enough. When people hug 20 seconds or more, the feel-good hormone oxytocin is released, which creates a stronger bond and connection between the huggers. Oxytocin has been shown to boost the immune system and reduce stress. I'm an anti-hugger. And 20 seconds is an enormous amount of awkward time. (laughs) Now, if you're addicted to oxy, (laughs) 
this might be a good therapy, professional hugging. Uh, but uh, anyway, we're not going to change our hugging style. I just thought I'd throw that out there because you, you, the idea is here she's hugging Jesus and he seems to like, you know, put her off. I do that, but Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wasn't anti-hugging. What he's communicating to Mary is what we know is true. His relationship to her and the disciples has changed completely in the sense that he's going to be in heaven and they're going to remain on the earth. They're not going to be able to hug him and touch him and, uh, and be directly with him. Something better was coming, the Holy Spirit within them. And so this is Jesus' way of telling her through her actions, hey, this is all going to be different and it's all going to be better. Don't fall into these old habits of thinking that you need to have me around personally because you will, but so will every other believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Joseph Benson writes, Mary had seen the Lord alive and he had spoken these things unto her as a message to be delivered to them and she delivered it faithfully. Observe, reader, when God comforts us, it is with this design that we should comfort others, and they that are acquainted with the word of Christ themselves should communicate their knowledge for the good of others. Jesus, we would say, was going to ascend, and then he would send. He ascended into heaven, and then he sent God the Holy Spirit to indwell and to empower, to enable, to embolden, indeed, we would say, to anoint us, that we would be sent to reach others. God raised Jesus to life, God's Spirit now lives in you, and he will raise you to life by his Spirit, both now and forever.